Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, Yas here. And I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have a fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favor to ask. And that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch, guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at The Coaches Net. Once again, that's at The Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to The Coaches Network podcast a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A-license football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Sammy Lando. Morning, Sammy, or afternoon, rather. How are you, man? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, yeah, very, very good. Looking forward to chatting some football, and uh, yeah, it should be a good, should be a good chat. Definitely, Sam. Before we just jump into the deep end of it, um, straight off to you. You know, who is Sammy? Where did he start his journey, and how did you get into it? Uh, so, Sam, the way that I like to think about Sammy is uh, he's a, he was a young national league coach. Um, so sort of well away from the non-league. I'm also more known for being football's first substitution coach. Um, so a role that I sort of invented. Uh, and future Premier League champion is what I'd like to think. So uh, a little bit of past, present and future, I think. But the no, journey started when I was sort of a little bit of a nipper. And obviously, I always love football. It's, it's the dream, in it? It's everyone's dream. You want to play it, want to be a Ballon d'Or winner and all the rest of it. But ne- never quite good enough. And uh, unfortunately, I lost the sight in my right eye sort of accident when I was a little bit younger in a car crash. So playing was, was always going to be tough with, with, you know, half your vision. So for me, it was like, what's the next best thing? The next best thing is to work in it. And, and my journey's sort of been a little bit of recruitment, a little bit of analysis, a little bit of coaching, and it's sort of all fed into where I am today, which is which is quite nice. So everything happens for a reason, I guess. No, 100%. I think we've all got our own journeys that we're on. And it's quite interesting, obviously, you talked there about, you know, um, growing up wanting to be a player. And, you know, I never actually thought about it when I was younger, thinking about, yeah, win a, win a Ballon d'Or, but it's always just become a pro, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, 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 so I guess, you know, from, from that, you know, you talked there a little bit about your, you know, your accident and whatnot. How 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 did that impact you in terms of your coaching to start off with? You know, you know, when did coaching first start coming into into play with it? Yeah, it was um, like I still try. So it happened when I was like ten and eleven. Uh, naturally, it sort of stunts your development, you know, because you're in, in out of hospitals, had a lot of surgeries. So you know, my physical development w- was behind probably what the average was. So you know, I always struggled a little bit. Um, but then then sort of when I was like played to 14, 15, 16, but then it was a bit like, well, you know, it's not going to go any further. So I'll continue to play leisurely. But like now, now it's time to like focus on the pathway that I want to go to. So, yeah, started um, focusing a little bit more on like scouting and analysis because mm. I didn't know if I had the personality to be a coach. I didn't know if I had the the charisma. And, and at 16, you're still learning yourself. So I think at that time I was a little bit more 
want to be in the backgrounds and and you know I like numbers I like you know observing things and so that that took its natural progression and the more I got into like analysis and scouting you start thinking I can affect this I can affect yeah. what I'm seeing here and then that's where like coaching is isn't it where you can start influence a result or influence a person's yeah. development and yeah so it's sort of like I said it's been like quite a nice journey into it really because I'd never really maybe set out wanting to be I wanted to be in football but the coaching role just came about because I enjoyed observing things and then being able to affect the outcome of it and I think being able to be on the grass and with people is something that yeah is is a big uh yeah big value to me I love that I love that and it's so interesting you talk about it because you know you started off by saying the next best thing is working in it right and I think that's probably one of the things that's kind of really sparked me in in starting the podcast in you know through my own experiences and you know all the people that I've met and engaged with and just helping people understand that you know there is there is places in football for everyone and oh, not, it doesn't have to be coaching for everyone either mm. so I think often you know traditionally you think all right if you're not going to be a player let's be a coach but actually as as the as the time's gone on especially in the modern day game there's so many different roles and you know you, you started off obviously talking about the specialist role which, which you've kind of embarked on as well and so let's 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 before we get to that that part of it though mm. let's talk about the scouting and then the analysis piece because obviously that piece is obviously you know fundamentally laid the foundations of where you're at now what what was it about that in particular and was it was it more so that at the time you felt that you, like you, you didn't really have the personality for coaching that's why you wanted to maybe just do something different to kind of keep yourself involved or was it that in the initial stages coaching just wasn't on the agenda yeah, I think it was more that I didn't feel ready to be a coach. You know, I think being a coach has a lot of responsibility. You know, there are people that you're not in charge of, but that you're that you're influencing and, and that you're working with. And I think you've got to be the best version of yourself in order to coach because, you know, mm. sometimes, especially with kids, you can just say one throwaway comment and it could be mm. the kid, that's the one comment they listen to all session. And then it's like, you know, you've got to be so ready for, to be a coach. And I think when I was 17, 18, I, I wasn't ready for that. So scout was a really good way, like you said, to be involved in football, but but not necessarily be um, at the forefront of everything. You know, you, you could make a few mistakes. You could learn along the way. You know, I was able to go and I worked at Brentford as a scout um, just in the academy before it shut. And that allowed me to go in and watch all these great coaches, you know, do sessions in the academy in the 18s. And then that allowed me to start build my repertoire of like, how does he act as a coach? What sessions does she do as a coach? And allows you to put together a little bit of a portfolio, similar to with analysis, you know, it's a little bit closer to being on the grass because then you're filming sessions and clipping things and chatting with the coaches. So again, it was one step closer. And then that final step was sort of being a coach. And mm -hmm. yeah, scouting and the analysis was really important. To, as you said, laying the foundations, because I think, you know, empathy is a massive thing in football. So to work as a scout and analysis I can then sort of link that into being a coach. I think I think you can really merge all the all the things into your process. And by having done the experience, I think it really put me in a good position to build this sort of process that I want to I want to build. And, and I'm I'm smiling at because you got you got my head going in so many different directions, <laughs> right? Now, right. Um, you know, I want to say let's let's go back to the scouting to start with, right? Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about that in terms of you know what what, what does a scout actually look for you know obviously everyone's different obviously how much of that is influenced you know we talk about bias you know whether subconscious and conscious biases how much of that is aligned to what you're looking for and i guess how how is that experience as a scout now supported you in your coaching and do you think it's actually now on, on the back end of it now going into coaching if you were to go back into the recruitment piece and scouting in particular that you probably ha would have even a I guess a greater, greater eye for observation, if you like. That that's exactly it. That's the biggest word that I took from scouting was observation. Like it taught me the ability to be observant, and and I think that is the most powerful tool at that stage of my development that I had. Is that when I would watch this game of football, I would notice who interacts with who and how. I would notice who reacts to a negative situation or a positive. Give me an situation. example of that. Um, so, for example, I always think the biggest thing is when a player comes out. You know, is he is he high fiving the mascots? Is he is he you know does he clap the crowd? Does he, you know, does he is he the first one out? Is he the last one out? You know, does she help get the equipment in when the coach is packing up? Does she, you know, what I mean, all these little things help build this character assessment. And I'm not for one second saying that that's a fair reflection of them because they're in a game day. They might be just being a little bit of a zone or, or something like that. But you start understanding 
people and, and, and how they work and what motivates them, what they like, what they don't like. And I think when you have that skill relating it to being a coach, that's crucial. Like when, when I set my session up for, for, for anyone I coach now, you know, it's all these little mm. things and it all contributes towards a sort of like larger process and larger valuation of them that, that you're trying to build. And particularly I've done a lot of coaching with, with youth players and, you know, football is a way that you can instill values. So when you're coaching these young people, when I say, you know, lads, we're going to need the goal down here. Once you've got the goal down here, I know you're ready to move on to the next part of the session. And I watch the same two lads go and get it every week. I just think that like that annoys me. They're like, that's like, that, that, that's like, that just doesn't like sit well with me. You know, this is a team. This is, that's what football is. It's a team game. If you want to be an individual, go and play tennis or go and play a sport where you just have to look out for yourself. But this is a team game. So go and help them. Go and share the load. And, that comes from being observant when, when I sat and just used to look at hours of stuff and, and that was really useful. It's interesting, right? Because, you know, I was thinking, sitting there thinking about everything you said then, you know, is that some of your own biases that are talking there in, in the fact that, you know, how this person maybe presents themselves pre-match, you know, during the warm-up and all these other things? Because on the other side of it, there'll be people saying, well, actually, do they show up on the match day and do, you know, when they cut, when they step over the white line on night, for 90 minutes? Do you do the business? Do you, do you know what I mean? So I think there's so many different aspects to kind of delve into what you said there. But mm. <clears throat> I guess one of the things that it takes my mind to straight away is when I'm speaking to coaches in particular and we're looking at, I'll give you an example, you know, you're, you're looking at it starting with your journey as a scout. Do you mm. not think that some, some limitations on that in the fact that if you have some coaching experiences, you may be able to see some different potential within the player based on how you might want to coach them or some of the experiences that you've had as a coach and you know that are going to potentially influence that as well. And, you know, what, what, what are some of the pros and cons you think that exist there? Yeah, I think that's a nice perspective. And, and one thing that I, that, that I did when I was a scout was that we would always, or as part of a contract, we'd have to go in and watch the current players. So, so what they looked like, how they acted, what were their technical standards, tactical standards, how the coaches acted. You know, you'd have to know as a scout the environment because when you go and watch these players, like you said, this player might be unbelievable from minute one to minute 90, but then not clap the fans. But then you're thinking, well, our environment is the sort of environment when a player comes into, you teach them these values. So he's got the technical, but is there, you know, is our environment going to be able to add a little bit to his character or a little bit to his development? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of thing. So yeah, I definitely think there's value in merging the processes. I don't like, I, I like that there's departments in football, but I think the more loosely those departments are sort of like intertwined, everyone's process gets a little bit more layered and a little bit more deep and a little bit more thorough. And like you said, that's where I think the value lays. That's where the marginal gains are had. It can, it can be quite territorial, right? Because, you know, you, you know, certainly from my experience, you people in the scouting department, the recruitment side of things, you know, they're, they're very set in their ways and yeah. it can be very, very, you know, I guess rigid in what they consider potential to be. And I, I guess one of the questions that always kind of goes through my mind about, when I'm speaking to scouts or people from the recruitment side of things, is how much do they put a consideration? Do they even look through the lens of, do you know what? I've gone, I've come to see Sammy, but Sammy's going to be a great player because I know that he's going to be working with such and such coach. This coach yeah. is going to be able to get what they, how much of that, how much of that is is a consideration of yours in knowing that this player is going to actually be paired with this particular coach? You know, is there even that consideration in there? And what, what, you know, if there was. Was that there at the beginning of your journey or, or, or did that eventually start coming in at a later point? Yeah, I think that started coming in when I actually started doing a little bit more analysis work because then you start, sometimes as a scout, again, I was a little bit younger, so I was learning the trade, but you, you look a little bit like, is he the finished product? Well, no, so we don't need him. Like, you know, he, he's maybe not going to be that, that beneficial for us. And then you start understanding. And one of my bosses said, always just look for one outstanding attribute. Because if he has one outstanding tribute, then we can build around that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, if he's, if he's the fastest player you've ever seen, you know, then all of a sudden you go, well, we can teach him the backs or receive. We can teach him to, you know, when to press, when not to press and these things. And that only came in, I think, a little bit when you start pairing it with analysis and you start then matching it with a little bit of data and, and a few clips and a little bit more of a profile and then start going, well, this player might be able to do this and this is some clips of our current winger who's doing it, let's link it to what this profile is playing. You start to, like like you said, marry the two together. And maybe the consideration wasn't there at the start, but I think that was part of my development into maybe into analysis and into into a little bit more. Mm. And it's interesting, you obviously talk about, you, you know, your journey into analysis as well. And I think, you know, I think you might you probably agree with this, that we're starting to see a lot more now where 
people with analysis backgrounds are now transitioning into coaching in particular and it's probably sought after more than anything than ever before of even yeah massively yeah like i did an article with the athletic a couple of weeks back about coach analysts and how i think that that is a fantastic sort of hybrid role that that marries two two skills together to probably produce another level and i think that there could even be more examples of that whether there's a sports scientist coach you know a coach who is a great coach brass with but can also really consider physical elements of the training session so is a coach sports scientist going to be next you know is there going to be other departments that merge to create these hybrid roles because it's actually more beneficial to have someone who can do both mm. rather than just like an individual doing that and an individual do that you know there mm. needs to be that bridge in between so i think it's no definitely so i guess just building on that then you know you're talking about your you know the idea of, I guess, having dual roles, if you like. When when does a dual role start to become a bit too generic, though? Because obviously you still need your specialists. And, you know, I might have some experience in analysis, but at the end of the day, I still need to be able to do it to a certain standard. But then on the flip side of that, it's also aligning that to making sure that what I'm analysing is in line with the perception of what the club are looking for as well. And obviously those perceptions might be different at certain times. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good point. I think the barrier, or, or like where you talk about like generic and, and not being a little bit brief, I think it it requires still departments of experts, and it just requires the bridge, if you will, as the role is now, you know, to to marry the two together to be good at both. So not excellent at one, but maybe good at both. And then it requires you know a few excellent people in the analysis, few excellent coaches, and then a good analyst coach to be the bridge and, and, and the personable person in between. So, I think, yeah, I think that that is a really important role. No, 100%. So, starting off as a scout, transition to analyst, talk talk about talk to me about that journey. How did, you know, how did that become a thing for you? When did you start thinking, okay, I want to go into analysis? And what did that look like for you? So, again, the opportunity came not necessarily through me looking for it, but, but sort of just by off being offered it. So, I was a scout at Brentford. Academy shut down, came down to Bournemouth, was a scout with Bournemouth, uh, and then worked my way up a little bit, did a little bit of work with the 23s. And at 23s at the time was a coach called Mark Mosley, who had also got a dual role with Weymouth, who were in step three of non-league. So, you know, he would be Bournemouth 23s in the day and go and do non-league in, in the evenings and nights. And he said, you know, like the way you work, be really interested if you wanted to come over and just do some opposition work because obviously opposition work is a little bit analysis and a little bit scouting so it was a little bit of that first step into actually analyzing upon a scouting observation if you will so that was the first little step and then my role grew into being lot on pretty much all the opposition analysis then it grew into being a little bit more about the comprehensive stats of the league and the trends and things that we could exploit and, and, and identify to use to our advantage and then it started going into player profiling and that sort of thing as well where, where we're going you know I've noticed that this player does this got a little package here of clips that I've put together I'd love to show it to him and, and think that we could actually get more out of him if he's like this so yeah it was again it was a probably a transition through through the roles and responsibilities but I, I love the analysis side of things it was a real like a real passion for me yeah no 100% I mean I, I, for me I, I remember when I first got into into academy football in particular and um you obviously, you know, that's probably the real first kind of step where you start to really understand, you know, that all the multiple disciplinary teams and all the different staff and all the specialists. And it, it, it always it always kind of um, baffled me how there wasn't as much collaboration as there possibly could have been. And it's almost like we've got, OK, they might not be necessarily the best in the world, but they, they, they're considered experts in different areas of the game, right, or different areas of, the, of, of talent development, if you like. Why are we not talking to each other more? <laughs> it, it always baffled me, and it, and then I guess when in the role that I kind of picked up on at the time, you know, I was doing a, a dual role as an outfield coach and a goalkeeping coach, and it was just, well, why would I not speak to the analyst? Why would I not speak to the the SNC coach? Why would I not speak to the physios to understand a little bit more about how they do things and what they want and what they think is, uh, if you like, best practice or, or or most effective ways of working? Because if they understand me and I understand them. That we can just put together a better program, right? So I guess you know, linking that back to yourself now. Where were some of the influences for you in terms of the analysis piece that you that you felt okay? Do you know what? 
actually this this might be a good piece to do or you know what kind of sparks some of the some of the ideas that you had there around you know maybe put, putting together some individual clips and things like that because for me i've always said i value the analysis piece i never really had much passion or interest in it myself um but then that changed for me a couple of years ago where, where you know where i was kind of shown a new way of doing things or a different way of doing things that i hadn't considered before and it's like do you know what, actually this thing, you can't not use it it just it just makes sense do you know what i mean mm. Yeah, no, the, f- the first part of that question, I suppose, is that the best managers are delegators in that they, they, un- they appreciate the knowledge is power. So, and they, well, they appreciate who the experts are and how you utilise them. Um, because if you just have 10 people in a room who will think like you, you argue that it's a useless room because you're not being challenged, you're not being elevated, you're not being layered in any way. So, yeah, having that programme, like you said, of bringing all the experts together to contribute is, is, is the ideal process. Um, I suppose I'm unsure why more people don't do it. Uh, that's probably the million-dollar question in director of footballs at the moment. Um, and the second part of that question is what sort of made me think about these ideas. And the biggest skill that I've had probably since I was a, a nipper was that I just love problem solving. I, I love solution mindset of finding ways to solve problems. And sometimes when you're scouting and, and analysing, you identify these things and then you start thinking like, like why is why am I keep why am I still seeing this? Like I, I I've noticed he's he's you know chopping on his left and always swinging it six weeks in a row now. Like why is no one addressing this? And that's where my natural instinct of like oh, I've got to get out there and do something. Like I can't just let this continue to happen. So and that's where that coaching again started to come in because I then started to feel confident enough in my knowledge and my skill set to think I can go and change this. I can go and impact yeah. this. And it's interesting. I, I, I'm just linking back into I want to take you back to something you said earlier in that. Starting your journey, you didn't think you had the personality to be a coach, and it's a conversation I've had with a lot of people recently around. Well, what does that actually look like? What it, you know, what what did the personality of a coach look like to you back then, and how was that view differed, if at all, any? Massively. So back then, like I'm 26 now, so like let's say 12 years ago, 14ish, when I start thinking about this sort of stuff, you know, 12 years ago, football was a completely different landscape. Football was, and also I live in a tiny town called Shaftesbury, you know, we have a Costa and a Tesco's and there isn't a lot else. So it's not like I'm really, like the nearest football club is Bournemouth, which is an hour away. Like, so I don't think I was really, had much football exposure growing up. I don't think that we are blessed in in this particular area of a rural area, um, that there is much, um, I suppose football opportunity. So I wasn't exposed to this education of what it looks like and and what it might be like. So the only exposure I had in football was like my grassroots coaches and my PE teachers and stuff. And they're all brilliant. Don't get me wrong, but but you know there's a reason why they're not in the Premier League managing. It's because they're you know that they're, they're it's not their dedication. It's not their full time job. So you know they're going to be a little bit rusty at times. So. Yeah, my exposure to, to coaches wasn't necessarily that big. But then when I started going into Bournemouth, Brentford, Weymouths, you start seeing quiet leaders, loud leaders, powerful leaders, purposeful leaders, you know, really, really sort of like demanding leaders. And then I start looking at myself and going, I think I could actually see myself in one of these moulds mm. and, and skill set could actually be used in this in this role. Just on that then, because, you know, it's a conversation I mean, just literally a couple of days ago I was having with someone um, around high performance right mm. and where does it begin and where does it end mm. right and the, the idea that grassroots coaches and even grassroots environments as a whole can't demonstrate high performance behaviors and actions right and it's just almost this mindset and it's certainly from my experience it'd be interesting to get your views on this as well and in, in your your perceptions in that it, it it can't it can't belong in grassroots it's like well actually the behaviors have to start somewhere right Mm, massively yeah yeah oh absolutely I think like I said football is an opportunity to instill values and and you don't need to be a Premier League manager to do that mm. you need to be a person with with a good understanding of people that that's all that takes you arguably don't even need to be a football coach you know yeah. there are people out there who understand what selflessness is and they could go into a team and they could probably coach selflessness because they understand it you know they might lose every week because maybe they don't understand what a back four looks like but they can instill values because they're they're good and that's what people understand so no, I completely agree that I think it can start anywhere. I also think it can be instilled by anyone. I think yeah. a player could one week and go, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead the warm up today, and you got some accountability and some ownership that you know that's a high achieving 
attribute and then you praise that and then someone else wants to do it and yeah I, I absolutely think it can be anywhere be anywhere it doesn't have to be at the top and I think that word that you've used there is massive in, in, in every element that I have working whether it's coaching or coach development that accountability piece is so important for me and I think that Again, you know, I often get challenged with it when, when I support coaches in grassroots environments, even work with players in grassroots, in that oh, you'll be you're, you're almost the critique is you're being too you're being too hard and you're being too honest. Well, no, I'm just holding them accountable. Someone has to do it because if 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 they don't get held accountable, then they'll never know whether they're, I guess, there's no one to check them essentially. Do you know what I mean? And if there's no one to check them, how are they going to get better? Massively, yeah, like behaviour has consequences. And, and the only way that you learn that is through sometimes saying, I think you were wrong. Like, I think think you were, or, or I think you were right. Or I think, or I think that, you know, in this situation, in debate, I think this side of the squad see it a little bit better than I think this side. You know, and I think it, that's why you could probably argue that maybe high performance is even more important in the younger years than the older years, because your makeup of a person is done, I mean, probably earlier than, you know, 10 to 12, 13, 14, probably even earlier. But to, to get it right there, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I, a hobby of mine is to like look at all these high achievers. And, you know, you look at Michael Jordans, you look at people who have really dominated their sports. So Conor McGregor was a good example for a period of time. Michael Jordan, obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo. You look at all these high achievers and, you know, their skill set and their mindset is developed so early that it, it's just their consistency and relentlessness that makes them successful. You know, mm-hmm. they, they don't become successful at 26 because they start doing stuff like Michael oh. Jordan's hard work, relentless commitment. And that, that would have been at t- 10 years old. You know what I mean? So, so yeah. it's done in the wrong. A hundred percent. And I, I think that, you know, just leading on that, you know, one of the things I often get critiqued for is, is telling players that wasn't good enough. Mm. And, you know, it's almost to that, to that point where, and it's again, a debate I have with coaches sometimes around well, when does, when does great just become good? Mm. Right, you know, obviously, you know, if you start doing something that's, you know, I guess extraordinary, it's, 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 you know, it's not a common occurrence for Sammy to be doing X, Y, Z. But now I've seen Sammy do it a few times. Well, actually, why am I still praising it? Mm. It's like, yeah, well done, you got there, but that's just the new benchmark that you've set. I can't keep praising yeah. you for that because you're just going to sit in your comfort zone, aren't you? So and it's just that piece of right. Okay, well, well I know you can do that now. So yeah, that's not going to get. That's not going to get my praise anymore. how do you feel about that sort of thing yeah i like that point it's probably not one i've considered too much before um because again i've started probably working more with senior players and so it's a little bit i think you you adapt a little bit to that environment and sometimes older players love obviously praise just as much as anybody and senior players but but necessarily done in a slightly different format or a different method and I suppose they know sometimes they have to set standards. So sometimes I've actually always said that I think it's it's good to coach standards, but the more you coach standards, the less you're coaching football. And I think again, it changes with what level you're coaching at. But when you're at when we're at Weymouth and, we, and we've got to go and win or Wimbledon or whatever, we've got to go win a game of football. You know, arguably, if I'm coaching football, that's going to help us win. And if you will coach your own standards then, you know, we don't, no one has to waste any breath on it and we can really utilise this 75 minutes for football. That's about setting the culture, right? Because, you know, you, you're now getting to the point where you, you're getting the players to hold each other accountable because they understand that is the standard, right? So, you, I mean, you have to kind of start with that somewhere. And if it, if it never happens, then they'll never, you know, you, you're kind of just hitting and hoping to an extent, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, 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 exactly that. Yeah, and yeah, the, the culture, you know, I suppose defines the behaviours that are done within this environment or a set environment. I think, yeah, culture important and I'm not saying that you shouldn't coach culture but I don't think you should coach it on the training pitch I think you know that that players should come out wanting to be early wanting to help wanting to try their hardest wanting to do all the right things because that's that's their job that's their role that's their dream yeah and I can coach a footballer and that's what's going to help us sort of kick on in a little bit no I, I fully agree with you I, the only thing I'd play you know if I'm playing devil's advocate the only thing I'd challenge there mm-hmm. is that you might have players who that is their dream that is you know they've they want to be able to do all those things, but they've never been part of an environment that's actually demanded that of them. Mm. So, you know, I guess there's that, that kind of blend, right, where we have to, or we're going to have to coach some of the culture piece mm. uh, and actually, you know, kind of hit it, hit it from two angles, if you like. But something interesting that you mentioned a couple of moments ago around, you know, working with senior players and 
tell me from your perspective, you know, what are the differences between working with seniors and senior players and, um, and you know, youth players, essentially? I think for me, like, the way that you communicate is probably the biggest thing. Like, you, you can never talk to a, a 19, 20-year-old Premier League loanee the same way that I'm going to go and talk to, a you know, a 9, 10-year-old who's just playing for enjoyment. You know, I think, I suppose, the motives behind why we're playing a, a little bit is different. So, therefore, I'm going to have to adapt to that situation. And, and, you know, not that the points will be identical, but but probably what you say is going to be similar because it's football, you know, it's, it's the sport. So there's going to be some similarities in what you're saying. But yeah, I suppose the way that you handle yourself, it has to be a little bit different because this, this Premier League star is going to come down. And I mean, why is he going to listen to me? Like, uh, I'm not, I'm not the re, like the goat of football. So, you know, I have to then come across a little bit more, I don't know, friendly and a little bit more like I, you know, I want to try and challenge him in the right ways rather than maybe with a nine-year-old, you could be a little bit like, you know, look, I think I think you need to trust what I'm saying here because I believe that I can add a, add another layer to your game. So give me give me an example of that. You know, working with senior player where you where you've had to kind of, I guess. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to sixty with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For lack of a better way of describing it, work to get, to get the credibility, if you like. So we had a player at Wimbledon who, again, this links a little bit into the subs role, so we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit, but had a player at Wimbledon who struggled being a substitute. Now, I mean, every single player in the world seems to struggle with that because of the, the connotations and stigma that come around being a substitute. So, again, that now that topic of conversation could be relevant to a nine-year-old, but is also now relevant to this 27-year-old who's played 200 games in professional football in various leagues and clubs. Uh, and And so we sat down and we talked a little bit about why it's negative and why why he feels so bad when he's not selected and uh and we sort of like we almost just talked as as me and you are right now and we were open i said myself like i'm here on a journey as well and i'm going to try and find out along with you why this reason is happening and we came to the conclusion that it was because it was his, it was his identity he was a football player he wasn't a football substitute so this whole 200 game playing and his whole career in academy he's a football player he's been taught to play no one's ever taught him to substitute no one's ever to consider a different perspective of football from not playing. So he was just having a little bit of an identity crisis. He couldn't understand his role. He couldn't understand what his role looked like, what his identity now looks like. And so what we did is we sort of just sat down and we talked about different ways and different, firstly, different identities that he has. So he's a dad. He, he's a best friend. He's a husband. You know what I mean? He's all these other things and he can do those. And that's his identity as well. But we also sat and talked about, well, you're going to have to accept this because you are a substitute and, and I, I don't make wave a magic wand to put you in a starting lineup. And the gaffer obviously needs to see something a little bit more at the moment in order to put you in that lineup. So what can we now do to help that? And what can I do to help you achieve that? Yeah. hundred percent. I guess just, you know, my mind's taking me to the idea of, well, you hear about it all the time, right? Certain players who are just actually more impactful coming off the bench than they are starting the game. You know, mm-hmm. how much of that comes into it? What in, in your, in your eyes is the, is the role of a substitute? Yeah, well, the role of a substitute is links to the uh, we, not me. So that's the first saying, is that as long as the team walks away with three points, that's the biggest success of it all. So not whether I got on and made an impact, not whether I got on and played, not whether it's, if we as a collective have, have left that stadium with three points, mm. then we've all ups. That's the first thing. And, and the second thing is how can your role assist the people who are starting, who are playing or who are coaching to go and help get that three points. So the goal is to get three points, and then the role is how do we all do it as a as a collective to help 
whoever it is at the front of the line leading us to get the three points. So I get you know, and it sounds brilliant in the ideal world. But you know, you <laughs> people here, right? You're dealing with people that, like you said, they might have played, they might have had 200 starting appearances uh, in the football league or you know whatever level they've played at, and. I guess coming to the terms of the fact that that's not going to be them anymore, you know, that's that's probably a massive challenge and a a massive transitionary period for them to kind of adjust and adapt. Is you know, how how do you sell that to them if they're not if they're not used to that? It's uh, it's, so it's it's a it's a variety of things, and I think that's what the substitution concept is because, like, what I'm talking about now is an impactful sub is more from a cultural point of view, but an impactful sub from a technical point of view is completely different. So there's different sort of lenses to look at it through. But the strategy sort of used are you have to make them see that the only way to add value to a game isn't just through playing. So mm-hmm. we had a nice moment with a club where centre-back was on the bench and traditionally they don't get substituted that often. So as a substitute, as a centre-back, you know, you are one of the players who are last in line unless there's a sending off or an injury. So I said to him, what could you do today to help your other substitutes? You know, how can you do that? Mm-hmm. And then half-time, we always do a little bit, I'm out there and I'm working with a striker and the, and the centre-back has got the winger and he's doing 1v1 scenarios. So he, the centre-back plays into the winger, winger drives at him, try beats him 1v1, gets a cross or a shot off. And second half, about 15 minutes in, you know, winger comes on, exactly the same part of the pitch. Winger produces a successful 1v1, chops in, wins a corner, we score from the corner. Now that action doesn't happen unless that centre-back is, is putting him through that muscle movement and that neuroscience and making sure that all his instinct is in line. So I got to the end of the game, I said like, said to the gaffer, I said, I think it would be really nice if you went over and said to this centre-back, like, appreciate what you did at half-time because it's added value to this player's game and it's added value as a team because it was the winning goal. Uh, he, that player felt like he then added value and contributed and he mm. understood his role most of the time is going to be playing because I don't ever want a player not want to play. But it's also about being, if you're not playing, what can you do to assist other players, coaches, mm. staff, to help us get three points? So that that was a really nice strategy. Yeah. I, and I, and I, I, love, I, love, I love the phrase, you know, you know and it's something I always say as well about how, how, do you, how are you going to add value? And, you know, if you're, not, if you're not sure about how to add value outside of being a player on the pitch, then that's where the coaching should come into it, right? It's just helping them understand some of the impact of that. And I think the, the key bit, is that recognition and the acknowledgement of actually what you've done has added value. And, you know, I always go with a phrase of what gets rewarded gets repeated. And mm-hmm. it, it just, you know, they just hopefully buy into the concept of how, how else they can add value to the team. And I think that bit's so key. So I guess let, let's talk about your role then. How, you know, where did that come from? No, who, 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 who wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be a substitution coach? <laughs> so I always thought that I, I could... Again, talk about maybe not wanting to be a coach or whatever, but I always thought I was good enough to be at the top of the game. I always thought that I wanted to chest myself against the best. I wanted to try and compete the best, challenge the best and that sort of thing. So, again, coming from a really rural town where there isn't a lot of football history, I had to do something to put myself on the map. So, done pretty well to get to Weymouth. You know, I was 21-22. We worked through the analysis section. I've been appointed first-team coach. Was in the National League. So, I was 22. We were going Notts Counties, Wrexhams, all these sorts of places. I was on the training pitch leading. So, I, I put myself in a good position. But then, for me, I was like, well, how do I take this to the next level? How do I break into the Football League? How do I break into the Premier League? How do I break into, into the national scene? And so, we went through a stage in COVID where we didn't have enough players because we were a part-time team in a full-time league. So I started getting named as a substitute. So the gaffer gives me a call, says, get in a little bit early. I'm like, yeah, right. Like talk through our pressing shape again and get some you know, resources ready. Pull up, walk into the changing rooms and they've got this big Lander 13 kit um, up on you know, my shirt, my shorts, my shinnies. And I'm thinking like, wow, like, I'm in here. Like, this could be the start of my playing career, like, let alone anything else. And uh, he says, yeah, you're, you're as a substitute. Like, again, we might not use you. We only got three subs. We've got a keeper, a centre-back and you. And so, like, it's a good chance you could come on. You know, we're playing Maidenhead. So, what it is, 89th minute, striker goes down. Gaffer turns to me and he says, like, you're going to have to, you're ready to come on. Like, you're going to have to come on in a minute. And I'm thinking, like, Christ, like, I, I'm I'm in my bench coat. I'm in tuned in with the game because it's my coaching role. But, like, I'm got a few jelly babies here i'm talking football you know i mean i, I haven't moved in about an hour because i've sat in this freezing november boat sort of like coat so i just think then it was like a light bulb moment. i thought wow like this is horrible what a horrible moment this is 
this can't be what every single substitute feels like. And and the, the consensus is that most substitutes actually do feel like that. So that was the light bulb moment where I thought, like, wow, there's definitely something that can be done here, by the way. Like, this can't be the norm. And so, yeah, it started developing, 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 and it sort of turned, add layers and snowballed into this, like, massive concept where it then had loads of different angles and different roles. And, yeah, it was it was mad, to be fair. But, it's, again, it's about me being a problem solver. I thought, this can't be it. You know, I've got to go and influence this. And that's where it sort of started. I, I guess in some ways, you, you, I guess you could say that if it had you not been a substitute in that game, you probably would never have appreciated what that meant, right? Yeah, what, that's what, what that felt like. It's empathy. You, you have yeah. to live the role sometimes to understand the role. I think you can have a level of empathy towards being something but until you've truly lived it i don't think that's a, like a level of empathy that you can just get so i lived mm. what it was like to be a substitute on three or four occasions yeah. and i was wow like there's something here so yes i think i completely agree 100 percent. and i think one of the key things obviously within that is even if you have been through the experience i think it's important to understand that everyone um i guess responds to those experiences in different ways despite the similarities that might exist within them right and i think for me i'm, I'm just thinking about it aloud and thinking to myself blimey coming on 89th minute um like you said i think it just it just really i'm just thinking now as a coach probably puts more emphasis on the idea of right making sure the players are ready when they're coming on making sure they are warm when they're coming on you probably have a different appreciation and understanding for that as well right yeah well like it was literally like the gaffer had just turned to me and said right, i need you to get up i need you to hit your top speed and i need you to run into that six foot five center back and win a duel and I was sort of hearing me bench coat, having mm. not moved for now. You just think like, no sports scientist in the world would recommend that. No, <laughs> no, no, no warm up, no, no anything like like I could pull a muscle straight up. And it's and again like it's not it's not groundbreaking. And there's there's other parts of this concept that has legs, but things like that. It's just it's just it's being inclusive in football. It's making sure that your players feel ready because if a player feels ready, you're going to increase the probability that he can have in a game of football. So let's talk about that. Obviously, there's going to be people listening to this from you know different walks of life and um, working at different levels of the game, whether that be in academies or in grassroots uh, coach with football or anywhere in between. Because that this is a piece that I'm always I'm always kind of harping on about, especially when I'm out watching games and I'm working with coaches in the in grassroots in particular, where it's like, well, if you know you're about to bring that sub on in 10, 15 minutes, obviously if it's an injury or something like that, you you know you can't plan necessarily for that. Um, but how how do you you know the challenge I always put in is that how can how can you preempt or how can you prepare uh, uh, for the worst case scenario, right? And it's just making sure the players are always warm. So I guess from your perspective, what are some things to maybe for coaches to start to think about around making sure the players are ready to come on, making sure and obviously you know making sure they're warming up properly. How many times do you see it, you know, especially at grassroots environments where you know you get you, you tell you you see the coach tell the players to get ready or to come on and and they literally just do a little five or six high knees on each side and they're ready to go. It's like, well, not going to be ready for a game like that, are you? So, you know, what, what, what are some of the insights that you can share with that? Yeah, and it's, I would not say it's worse at professional level, but, but when I first came into some clubs, their, their substitute warm-up is go down the touchline, drop to one knee, chat to their mate who's on the opposition team, open the gate, close the gate, run back up, get in your coat and, and you're done. And you just think like sports scientists or even the gaffer saw you doing that, you know, if the starter did that, you'd question whether they were ready, whether their head's in it, what's up with them. But for some reason, substitutes seem to get like this free pass and it's like, oh, yeah. so we, you know, he's, he's all right. But it's like, kind of can't be allowed. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think there should be even a greater emphasis on the sub being fully ready, right? And I, I, it's one of the things that, it's one of my bugbears, really, when I see substitutes get ready to come on, it's just like, you're not ready. <laughs> you're definitely not ready. And <laughs> I, you know, I guess a lot of this comes back to guidance and, right, and support in terms of, you know, what what can we do as coaches to help them become more ready to come on? Because it's not just the physical element; it's actually the psychological element. Like you said, you, you know, you, you touched on a few times already. In that, what are they do they understand what their role is coming in? Do they understand? You know, how much? And you know, you see it all the times. You know, whether a grassroots, whether a professional level, how often are the, are the subs really paying attention to what's going on? Mm. Versus that of them just sitting there sulking a little bit internally around not being not being played or whatever mm. that looks like. and maybe just because of those mindset challenges they're not even prepared to, to come on in the first place because you know if if that striker doesn't get injured you don't come on in the 89th minute in fact <laughs> you're watching 89th minute thinking yeah i can't wait to get back inside now yeah yeah you know how, how do you manage that i think well i think you touched on it brilliantly there where like i do have a lot of processes that aid 
both the staff and the players. So we find ways to be more deliberate with substitutions and data driven and all that sort of, and that's more of the coaching side of things. But we also implement a load of processes that helps the player experience of being a substitute. And the physical and the technical and the technical, they're all brilliant, but they don't happen unless the psychological or the mental side of things is there. Because like I said, you can have a player who's physically ready, technically ready, tactically ready, but if he feels like rubbish, you know, I very rarely do I see someone who feels like rubbish be able to perform at the highest level. So it all starts with the mental, but then once you start changing, like you said, the culture and a little bit more about around what a substitute is viewed as or a finisher, then you can start going into your, right, then how do we prepare them physically? How do we prepare her technically? How do we prepare them tactically? And those things, again, have to be a little bit careful with what I reveal because obviously it's the thing that's made me a little bit relevant. But but one good example, actually, that I said on a podcast the other day is shirt and chinnies. So the average substitute gets 10 minutes. Uh, the average substitute takes 60 seconds to get ready. Well, you've just taken 10% of your game time away because you've just because you've just taken a minute to get ready because you don't have your shirt on, you don't have your shinies in, you know, you don't have your boots tied up. And so you're not ready if the gaffer turns around to go and to go. So you're wasting game time. And as a substitute, you know, your game time is valuable. You know, they're the, they're the slight three, four minutes that you get given to, to, to make the manager believe that you should be in the starting eleven. So to waste one of those by taking your big coat off, taking your big trousers on, getting your shirt on, putting your GPS in, like all this sort of stuff can be ready. So we, we have these sayings of the, of the clubs that I go around. We say shirt and shinnies. You make sure your shirt and shinnies ready at all time. Because like you said, you also don't know when a red card's going to happen. You don't know when a, a, a really serious injury is going to happen and they're going to be off in like 20 seconds. And then your team might be down to 10 men for a period of time because you're not ready. And all these little things can, can contribute towards it. So, so yeah, shirt and shinies is one of the easier things that I can sort of recommend. Man, I think it's a great point because, you know, you talk, you, we, we, we see it all the time, right? The players, in fact, they don't believe they're going to come on. They don't think they're going to come on. So they're actually just not even engaging with the process of being involved in the game at all. So yeah. I think it's, it's a great point. So I guess, you know, in terms of obviously managing talking about managing staff and you know having strategies for staff what what does that look like so for me and again you touched on it i suppose a little bit earlier as a, as a preconception of, of what substitutes are but you know a lot of people substitute i think with a hope and and i think there's not a lot of rationale behind it uh, and i think when you do that it's almost just like chucking a net out into an empty ocean and hoping that there's gonna be like a fishing net <laughs> you know you, you there's no sort of like rationale as to why you might be doing this how you might be doing it when you might be doing it and, and what I try and do is the three words I use is try and be more deliberate and effective with our substitutions to create more consistent and effective substitutions. So, you know, one equals another, really. So what, what I do is we build, you know, player profiles and we build a little bit more rationale behind the, the who's the wet, the when's, the why's and all this sort of thing. And then I give that to the manager and, and we work together and other staff. And, and ultimately, it's their decision, the manager's decision. I will never say, I, th I think you need to do this. Sure. It's all an advisory role, just like every other role in a club is. Um, and then whether they choose to listen to that, then then that's completely up to them. And I just because I'm, I'm just thinking now, you know, if some of the listeners listening to this thinking, oh, you know, love the idea of a substitution coach. We haven't got the resources for one. What are some of the considerations we could start taking into, into account when we're not thinking about it? So, you know, talking about the what's, the where's, the why's and the who's. Um, you know, obviously that's it is contextual, it is subjective around the environment. What what are some of the considerations that you think they could start to think about around around those sorts of things in terms of why this player might need to come on or why that player? You know, give us an example, maybe if you can. You don't have to name any names, but yeah, I think so. A little bit of work I've done recently for a club. We looked at this player's profile and and we were trying to understand what his trends were, what his patterns were, and stuff. And it leads to the fact that he's probably a better losing substitute than he is a winning substitute. So his his mentality when he comes off the bench is a little bit more free, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more want to go and impact the game. And again, that's something we can work with because, again, we shouldn't just accept that he can't be a winning substitute because we need players to be able to do as much as possible. So in the meantime, we can start working with him and saying, well, this is how we want you to adapt your game when we're in this game state. But in the meantime, we've got this player who's doing really well in this game state. So that's only come about us sort of having this curious look into this player's profile and his data and his pens and, pens and trends and that sort of thing. Now, how can we use this to our advantage? So next time we're losing, 
is this our first substitute? Is this the player that we look to go and influence? Because the last five games he's had as a losing substitute, he's really added value to the game in these aspects and in these metrics. So that that's the, again, without revealing too much, yeah. but too hopefully that answers your question. But just I think... Clarify, more, I don't know what, just have, clarify for anyone that's unaware of what you mean by winning substitute versus that of losing. Yeah, so a winning substitute is when you're winning uh, and you want to make a substitute, you know, you're two nil up and you think, right, I want this sub to come on uh, or this finisher, energizer, whatever you want to refer to them as. But I want him to come on and I want him to see the game out. I, I want to win this game 2-0. So when I come on, I just want him to see the game out. And that looks completely different to when you're losing a game 2-0 and you need a substitute to come on and change the game. Because, you know, one example that we use is pass completion for a winning substitute should be far higher than probably a losing substitute. Because the losing, it's all contextual a little bit, but the losing substitute has to come on and try and create something. So he might be playing riskier passes, might be trying things that maybe he wouldn't if we were winning. Whereas when we're winning, we need him to come on, circle it around the back four, drop in, bounce it to the CDM. You know, we need to be a little bit more safe because at the moment we're controlling the game through possession. That's his role because we want a clean sheet and we want 2 0. We're losing 2 0. We need him to come on and thread as many passes through balls, you know, clips over the top. So, while you know, I'm not saying the losing substitutes past completion should mm. be then, then no, no, there's a bit more context well. around the numbers, right? Say that again, sorry. It's a bit more context around the numbers and the data, right? So, you're just understanding that you know, actually, they, they probably will have a, a slightly lower pass completion rate because they're trying more riskier passes to try and make something happen, right? So, I guess you know, I'm just thinking out loud now, again, putting my mind in maybe some of the listeners, listeners in that. Are you suggesting that maybe sometimes you might put players out of position because of those kind of statistics? I mean, I, I, that's a more of a my philosophy thing that I think then I would... I mean, listen, I would say I would recommend that to a manager, but again, it's his discretion, it's his job, it's his team, and you know, so I would never want to be responsible for that. But by all means, I would suggest it. But for me, yeah, like profiles... And, and Lee Carsley, the England under-21s boss, said this recently where... Said we don't have a formation, we just have profiles within a team. And, and I think this links into that, where you can have like a player who's good at possession. Well, where do you need the possession? I need it here. See if he could, you know, see if Trent's a good example, isn't it? Like he's a right back, but his skills look like he could play most positions. So it's like, where do we need his skill set? Well, let's yeah. get him in that position in order to maximize our opportunity. That's no, a great way of looking at it. I guess, you know, the, the question I'll throw at you now then, how, how does that role at all change for you? if at all in any way, we're working, working with the goalkeeper that's on the bench? For me, goalkeeper substitutes or the number two goalkeeper are my favourite people in the world because I think they're the most professional people, players and people that I've ever met. So all the clubs go into and, and it's a culture that goalkeepers, goalkeeping coaches create. That You know, it's like Ramsdale is a good example of at the moment. You know, how often do you see potentially a player lose his spot and still, you know, congratulate the person who's taken his spot. You know, like if that makes sense. Like Ramsdale's come out and said, you know, he wishes Raya really well. You know, he, he's come out and there was a moment, I can't remember what game it was, but Raya had a good game. Ramsdale's first went out to, to congratulate him and, and that sort of thing. And don't get me wrong, again, I don't want a player who's happy to be on the bench because I'd question his mentality, but there's a way about going about that process. And, and the reason I love these goalkeepers is, so we had a goalkeeper at Wimbledon who, who didn't play, I think, we only made one goalkeeper substitute all season. So 46 game season, you know, that's 45 times he's been on the bench, but he still straps his hands up. Like he's starting every single game, you know, with the tape, he goes, he's a physio just in case he makes sure that he puts the best balls he's ever put into the number one to make sure that they are ready. And, and I think the way that they go about their warm up is admirable because they're not thinking on the starting today. Because it's not even a thought. They just think my job here is to warm up this number one. And I think it's a brilliant concept. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think you're spot on, you know, even through my experience of working with keepers and even watching others, is there always seems to be that camaraderie amongst goalkeepers. What, what can we learn from that, do you think? How do, how, do, how do we transition that and transfer that element of, of I guess, if you like the goalkeepers union over to the rest of the, rest of the world of football? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I don't know how we would. Again, like an example would be when the centre-back was warming up the wide man and then the wide man came on and did what he had to do. That's a great example of a goalkeeper warm-up where it was like, I know that I'm not coming on, but my role can be used here to help him go on and win us the game. And I, I might get a win bonus for it. I don't know. But So it's a t- it's a t- I don't know how, 
I suppose the little things that I've sort of designed in this process might maybe be changing that towards a more inclusive environment. Um, but, but goalkeeper specific, I'm unsure on, but I just, I love what they stand for. I love the values. I love that, you know, at the end of the game, it's always like, congratulations. You know, they always sit next to each other as well. And it's like, you know, it's a real, like, I want you to do well, because if you do well, I do well. And don't get me wrong, like, I'm going to come for your position Monday to Friday. But, like, Saturday, I'm going to wish you all the best. I'm going to make sure that you go win us the game, because it helps me as well. Mm. Mm. No, I think it's spot on. I think it's just that, that I've always thought about it from a goalkeeper perspective, in particular, it's that iron sharp, sharpens iron uh, kind of mindset, right? And that, mm. well, look, if, if, if I'm going to have to work harder to get, get in the team, then it's going to make you better and it's going to make me better in return if you're competing with me. So I think it's a great way to kind of look at it as well. And yeah, it's a world of a world of a substitution coach. <laughs> where where next, Sammy? What you know? Where, what does the future? What does the future look like for this? You know, have, have you have you had a, any interest in other people trying to maybe embark on a similar journey, going into substitutions? You know, what what does that look like? So I mean, I, I don't know too much. I mean, my email is always open for for someone, and I think it's a rather niche role because I think you have to have a really good personality uh, and an energy and a charisma and a and intelligence to understand people but you have to have great you know great use of data you have to be really comfortable with data uh, and you've got to be i suppose resilient in a sense that you're, you're having a new role in football which comes with its adverse effects of mm. you know some like the older fashioned people not not being an advocate of it and, and tough opportunity because you know you're trying to bring a role into someone's budget so yeah, I don't know whether the role will ever blow up. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the future of football looks like. I personally think it, or oh, I know it adds value because I've done it enough times with enough clubs to, to say I've taken them from here to here and I've added this many points and this many goals onto him and then we've made him a better substitute. And so I know it works. I think the future of it could be that you could be a first team coach who specialises in substitutions. Just like you might, there might be first team coaches who specialise in set pieces or mm. a first team who's also a goalkeeper coach, mm. you know, first team coach who's also a coach analyst, you know, again, so I could see it being a hybrid role where you're going Monday to Friday, I want you to come in and do the business and, and help me, you know, on the pitch and on the grass and in the analysis. But, but Saturday, I want you to focus on the subs, I want you to focus on making sure they're ready and all this sort of thing. So um, I think that's the future of the role. I think the future of me uh, looks like, I mean, I want to, like I said, I want to get to the top and I want to win the Premier League. So, that that is the goal and that's what i'll be aiming for and i think i just gotta see i've just got to see opportunities along the way that that help me build this build this reputation and legacy that that i care about i care about legacy and so you know the subs things put me on a brilliant platform you know most recently was you know did a little bit work for the national team um in, in the us so it's about using that platform to get you into other opportunities in clubs in in whatever role i believe i can add a value in but yeah and just just to build on that really quickly, then you know, I'm just thinking wider now. It, it shouldn't really, but in 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 what ways, if it has it, has it maybe made you think about individual development plans differently? Yeah, I, well, I think it makes you think about the whole process because a lot of individual development plans are like, how can we make you the best starter? But mm. for me, this has made me think like we've got a squad of 25 there's only 11 going to start you know there's another three four five then out that might come on so you've got to work with those five but then how do you also work with the nine ten eleven that are, that are left out and so it's about an individual development plan that's holistic i think that's such an important word in in today's world that in today's footballing world anyways that you have to design a program that enhances a player's experience throughout their whole process because if you only have a process that improves them as a starter they're not going to get any better as a sub. They're not going to get any better as a as someone who's not even included in the squad. They're not going to be better in that position or this position. Like you, you need a holistic program that that's going to improve them, the, you know, across their whole value. Because mm. whether you're a club that sells, that's only going to benefit you, or whether you're a club that that develops, that's only going to benefit you. So for me, I think there's real value in in building a holistic program. Awesome. Sam, you, you, if, I've got so many questions in my head, but I'm, I'm conscious of time as well. Um, but no, it's really, it's really insightful. I think, you know, I think the first and foremost is just, you know, congratulations to you on your role and, and, and how you're getting on. I think it's just a testament to, you know, your character. And I think more, more specifically, it's just really highlights that there isn't just one pathway for us to exist in the game, right? Um, there's so many different roles. And especially now when you look at in coaching in particular, never mind all the other disciplines within it, how many different aspects of coaching we can kind of delve into and kind of work on, and that 
starting point for that journey can be so different for everyone as well. So I think it's just really kind of really highlights that. And I just want to, again, come back to the top of the conversation where I mentioned that one of the biggest things I wanted to kind of get out from the podcast in particular was to help people understand that coaching isn't for everyone. But if coaching is what you want to go after, it doesn't have to look the same for everyone. Um, so now massive, massively appreciate your time today. And I really, you know, really wish you the best. No, that's really, really kind. And like I said, just building on that point quickly, like that, that I've had so many conversations with, with the throwing coach. He's been a great mentor to me. I've had co- coaches with ball striking coaches, set piece coaches, goal kick coaches. That You know, they can be a coach for anything. As long as you can show that, you know, I go into subs as a sub presentation. I say, well, I think I could add another three points to your season with my concept on your subs. So if I had another three points in the Premier League, that's another one position up, which is another 1.9 million in your pocket, and you got to pay me pence compared to that. So, that, you know, as long as you have an angle that shows that you can add value, like goal kicks, yeah. throw-ins, and the rest of it, then by all means, there's, there's there's room for it. You've just got to show that you can add value. So, yeah, I think think there's definitely a pathway for everything. And, and really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Like I say, I'm a big fan of the, of the platform, so to feature on a podcast is, um, yeah, is really, really good, and I'll definitely be listening to it back and giving it a good rating. <laughs> no, Sam, I really appreciate your time again, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.